Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Media and Communications, part of the New Books Network of podcasts featuring discussions with scholars on current subjects in communication research, media studies, and technology studies. I'm your host, John Baltz, a digital media and advertising professional. Our website is newbooksincommunications.com, where you can subscribe and find a short summary of the book discussed on today's show. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to past conversations with other authors. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. If you like us, please consider leaving a review. If you don't like us, let us know how we can be better. Your feedback helps us prepare the best, most engaging conversations possible. Today's guest is Jonathan Donner, a senior director of research at the consultancy Caribou Digital and the author of After Access, Inclusion, Development, and a More Mobile Internet, published in 2015 by MIT Press. Today, roughly half of the world's population has a mobile phone, And about 85% have some form of access to the Internet, either through their own phone or PC or by visiting a digital cafe or library in their village, town, or city. In emerging markets, people's economic and social potential rests on their current and future mobile Internet experiences, and an optimistic narrative has proclaimed that the mobile phone is the device that will finally close the digital divide. Donner offers a note of caution here, arguing that access and effective use are not the same thing. The key to effective use is widespread digital literacy, which lags badly behind access. We talk about how each of us experiences the Internet differently. This individual heterogeneity exists despite the similarity in popular online activities in the developing and developed world, which would be chatting with friends, listening to music and playing games and getting directions. The cost of phones and data, connection speeds, and the fact that people in developing countries usually don't have their own PCs or tablets limits this effective use. Jonathan and I talk about those differences when consuming media and communicating with others, when expressing themselves through digital media, and when going online to be productive, either doing homework, looking for a job, growing a business. Our conversation lasts about an hour. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today is Jonathan Donner, a senior director of research at Caribou Digital, a United Kingdom-based consultancy formed in 2014 to research, uh, assess, and accelerate innovation in digital inclusion and digital economies in emerging markets. Jonathan has been publishing on mobile phones and their social and economic impacts for more than a decade, traveling and conducting ethnographic research in places like Rwanda, India, and South Africa. He's also been an active participant in communities of people, companies, and foundations who are working to fulfill the promise of mobile devices with Internet connections across the globe. Jonathan, welcome to the New Books in Media and Communications podcast. John, thanks so much for having me. The title of your book is After Access. Uh, I want to start with the first word of that title, after. Why is it there? Is but Why are you looking forward past access? Is, is access some kind of foregone conclusion? I think it's almost foregone. Uh, we're getting close to a situation where the significant majority of the world 
in theory, has access to the Internet. Uh, and this was not always the case. Uh, for a long time, the conversations about closing the digital divide or addressing the digital divide were conversations about infrastructure and about you know literally laying the, the cables and making the connections or building the telecenters such that uh, people in resource-constrained settings would, would have the opportunity to, to be online. It was a physical access problem. Uh, with the shift to a more mobile Internet, basically the, the mobile boom that's been happening for uh, 10 or 20 years, uh, now becoming a mobile Internet boom, um, that physical barrier has been removed for most of the world. So the figures vary a little bit depending on, on, on who's supplying them, whether it's the International Telecommunications Union or the GSMA or uh, some others that, that also try to make these estimates. But we think that by now about 85% of the world's population lives under a cell tower signal. Um, and about 50% of the world lives under a cell tower that has uh, broadband, you know, 3G or above uh, uh, internet signals. So that means, you know, and those numbers are going to rise as well. They're not going to get to 100%. But let's say that within five years, it's that same 85% or maybe it's 90% and, and you know, 80, 82% of those are, are, are living under uh, a broadband signal. Well, in that case, it's not an access question anymore. There are a whole bunch of other reasons why uh, people who live under those signals may not uh, be online or be online in the ways we, we, we think they should be, so we can talk about that. I think we will. Um, but that, that 80% or that 90% is a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, and I should preface this with um, the fact that we haven't solved for the other 10 or 15 percent of the of the world's population that, for various reasons, still lives un, uh, outside the, the the mobile signal, and therefore mostly lives uh, without the chance to get online. Um, this is you know people in extremely uh, sparsely populated areas, you know deserts and you know jungles and mountain valleys and that sort of thing, uh, and it tends to be um, populations without a lot of resources where the um, the way we've as a as a as a world decided to wire the world is is uh, letting private companies invest in the infrastructure and then and then charge for for access uh, and for this last ten or fifteen percent um, currently the technologies and the business models don 't line up to make it um, economically sustainable to put in towers there so we can also talk about that and whether that 's something that that will continue and what kind of policy things may be going on to address that last 15 percent yeah, do you think that that last 10 to 15 percent will sort of will remain a persistent a persistent gap uh even as the rest of the 85 90 percent mobile experience sort of matures i think so i mean I, and I, I don't know exactly how to project whether it's you know it's it stabilizes it at seven or, or ten or twelve or fifteen or two um but i do think that there are um you know, just this is again, we're talking about the, the physical spatial access to an internet signal or some means of connecting to the, the internet uh, servers. Uh, I think um, there will be geographies and, and um, maybe political regimes, local places, a whole bunch of reasons why uh, certain populations may still not have access. But it's a pretty small um, fraction of the world compared to where I think 
we thought we would be by by 2016. I think if if you went back 20 years and 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 imagined you know kind of how much of the world was going to have access by uh, you know by now, uh, I don't even think that the the wildly optimistic projections would have would have put us that high. Um, this is again physical access. We're not talking about use yet. We'll do that in a little while. Right. Um, and let me say two other things about this. There are satellites up there uh, that cover the whole world, more or less. Uh, and you could uh, buy yourself a base station. Your village could buy yourself a, a base station and get a type of Internet access right now. A satellite laggy, meaning a long time that the signal takes to, to get up and back. So it's not great for... Uh, you know, real-time conversations like the one we're having or, you know, um, some in, uh, more intensive uh, things that, de- that demand uh, low latency. But you can get online. Um, the problem is that type of access right now costs uh, a prohibitively large amount of money for the villages that currently don't have access. So if you are a, a super tanker floating around in the middle of the Atlantic, you can have your satellite Internet. Um, you could use that same technology to wire a, uh, a, a Himalayan village, um, but we can't afford that right now, and the village can't afford that. So in one sense, we're already at 100% coverage, uh, and it's clearly not simply an access problem. It's either an affordable access problem or it's an effective use problem. So for listeners who have not traveled as extensively or spent as much time as you have um, in these areas around the world, help help me us those kind of listeners understand what the mobile internet looks like from the perspective of someone living in an emerging market. You refer to it in the book as the global south. So let's say I'm in the bottom one percent as judged by per capita income around the world, but you know, I'm closer to the top of that. So I'm I'm actually earning money. I'm scraping out a living day to day, week to week, something like that. Uh, say I live in South Africa, where you've been, uh, and I have a mobile phone with Internet access. First off, w- what does that phone look like? Like, who's the maker? What what is it? What can it do? How much is it costing me? It's just sort of, w- yep. what am I doing? Like, what do I have? Well, there's a lot, uh, there's a, there's a lot to unpack and explore there, um, and I think... One of the challenges I found in the book, and I think um, people who work in these sort of spaces wrestle with a lot, is there's no there's no single archetypal user that represents the majority of people in the world. Most people live in the developing world, not in the what we call the developed world. Um, and there's a whole variety of different uh, profiles, uh, ways of living there. So, you know, there are there are um, Places in South Africa, and actually, funny, South Africa is a, a um, kind of a microcosm, right? I mean, there are incredibly rich people living in in uh, beautiful cities in South Africa. There are incredibly rich people living in beautiful ranches in South Africa. There are also a whole lot of poor people, uh, and everything in between. Um, so there's no single experience which I could point to that would uh, kind of say, well, this is how the rest of the world uses it, and it's different than how we use it. But there's a lot of heterogeneity, and what you do find are a lot of new use cases kind of as the the cost of technologies has come down, uh, the cost of a handset has come down uh, in particular, um, and as those towers have gotten out there to more and more of the uh, the the population and the uh, the landscape. That means there are cases now where people who lived uh, outside a signal before now have have access. So why don't we do two? Let's talk about an urban case and a rural case. 
Um, the urban case would be, you know, somebody, uh, maybe the sort of urban working poor in a, in a, in a, any one of, you know, hundreds of cities around the world where, um, the access has been around for a while, but, um, They've been able to switch from maybe only getting access to an internet through a telecenter or like a cyber cafe, uh, or, or maybe a, a shared, uh, connection somewhere, uh, to getting a phone. And maybe the first phone that they bought didn't ever have internet on it. It was just like a basic phone, like a Nokia, you know, the old candy bar Nokia phones that were so popular, uh, for so many people around the world because the battery lasted for two weeks and dust wouldn't kill it. And it was a great phone. Didn't have internet or what we think of as internet. Um, but then phone number two maybe had what they call a feature phone, and it started to have little uh, bells and whistles and, and maybe some early uh, uh, internet capability through something called WAP, Wireless Access Protocol. Um, maybe it had um, things that felt like a data connection, even if it wasn't a particularly good one. And then you know, there's this thing called 2.5 or, or, or edge networks, which maybe some of us remember from, from having it here in the, the States or, or Europe um, a few years ago. But basically every generation of phones has gotten better and better, and the, the, the phones that did have an Internet connection have gotten cheaper and cheaper. So that now we're in a scenario where almost anybody who buys a phone, whether or not they want to buy an Internet-enabled phone, gets an Internet-enabled phone. Um, so there are people who are kind of walking around with theoretical Internet access who haven't elected to turn it on. Um, if they turn it on, and this is going to count for rural or urban. I'm going to do the rural one in a second. But the urban one um, means, okay, so you've got a phone. Maybe it's still a feature phone, so it's not a smartphone. It's not an Android or, a, or a, 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 um, an Apple device that, that are so popular uh, here. Um, but it's just a, a phone with a data connection so that if someone sent you a text message that had a URL on it and you clicked on it using your little selector, you know, kind of browse, um, cursor thing there, you would... Uh, initiate a data connection. Um, on those feature phones, the internet experience is uh, better than nothing and not quite what we might hope for, right? The browser uh, would be um, small, limited by, by screen real estate. Um, it's kind of hard to navigate the internet um, in, a, in a World Wide Web kind of way. So uh, the little kind of programs, like uh, which we now call apps, uh, become a much more effective way to navigate, right? So it doesn't even matter if you're just using a, a feature phone. Uh, you still may have a downloadable program like a, a chat or something like that that you use to be your interface to the Internet, uh, or certainly if you're using a smartphone uh, where, you know, the, the app experience becomes something where people want to spend more time in. So the, the phones that people buy aren't traditionally now bought on uh, with these you know, two-year installment contracts like, like, uh, like we get access to. Um, but people save up and they, and they buy a phone for you know, uh, the equivalent of $75 or so. Um, and then here's the important part. If they don't have access to Wi-Fi and they don't have access to a, a internet connection at home, they probably pay by the bit, uh, which means they buy little bundles of airtime, which are minutes to use on their phone, and then some of those minutes can get converted into uh, megabytes or, you know, if they're lucky, a, a GB of data. But probably they're buying by, you know, hundred, you know, hundred megabytes at a time. Um, and then it's like the experience of roaming, even though you're in your own house. 
You know, it's like that feeling of, I don't know how much it's going to cost. I better not click on that. Maybe I think twice about whether I want to click on that. Maybe if I click on it, I'm worried I'm going to run out of my minutes. Um, that becomes this sort of pervasive, um, what I call the metered mindset, right? Which, which is a kind of a check on, on whatever people want to do online. And I think that that is the single most, one of the two most important things to think about when we think about people using the internet through mobile devices. The first is the size of the device itself and, and the limitations on the keyboard and that kind of thing. And the second is this metered mindset that, that people pay by the bit. Now, oh, do you want to do a rural one real quick? I could say just yeah, one thing. Yeah, do a rural one real quick. I'm going to come back to this with a file, but do the rural yep. one. Do the rural one as well. So the the rural one is um, kind of all of the above, with even uh, in a lot of cases. And by rural, in this case, I'm sort of imagining the kind of the 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 almost idealized, you know, kind of rural village down a dusty road somewhere. Um, certainly not. Um, Certainly not with a lot of electricity, uh, and electricity actually becomes a, a big, a big um, limiting factor on on using one's phone. Some people are in situations where there's a cell tower that touches their home or their village, but there's no electricity in the village, and they actually pay more to recharge their phone and keep their phone charged than they do on the bits or the minutes that they consume via the phone. Um, so. That's one of the things that's going to keep us from having that 100% coverage we were talking about earlier is the electrical grid isn't, isn't there either. So um, the kind of connectivity challenge goes hand-in-hand hand with, uh, with the electric challenge. Um, so you've got a rural area. Maybe you've got electricity. Maybe they, they charge by even a, a car battery, and some guy kind of sells um, top-ups, electric chop- charges for you know, a, a, you know, a, a, f- a few pennies or whatever, depending on um, how cheap it was to get the electricity. People can use the phone. Um, and then if they're lucky, there's content that's in the language they speak. Uh, if they're lucky, they're, they're, um, they've got the digital skills and the literacies required to navigate the Internet, and they're, um, they're able to, to get online through their phone. And in many ways, uh, the remarkable power of this the promise of this is already being seen, you know, that, that someone down that dusty road in that tiny village doesn't have to spend two hours waiting for the bus, two hours to take a bus down to a medical clinic, wait an hour for a, a, a nurse to see them to talk about, you know, what they should be doing for, you know, whatever uh, things making them feel bad, and then do the same thing in reverse. There, there are promises about using the Internet for, you know, rural medicine or for... Um, uh, job search or education, you know, kind of reading little things on the side, although I don't think it replaces a, a teacher or a school. But there's ways to use, you know, even a, a tiny connection through a phone in ways that, that really allow more people to overcome distance, be much more productive with their time because they're not sitting waiting for that bus, to search for information over a broader area, to express themselves through chat and Facebook and, you know, um, you know WhatsApp and, and Instagram. Look, I've listed three Facebook things in a row. <laughs> um, they're all owned by uh, – all three of those companies are, are owned by Facebook, uh, which is uh, remarkably uh, prevalent through a lot of the developing world. Um, so I'm not knocking it, really, I, and I don't want to sound like um, – I'm not acknowledging, and the book the book takes this stance that 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 uh, this isn't uh, already a transformative thing uh, development in terms of the kind of shape of uh, communication and the potential that's there. 
what I think the book tries to raise through these urban cases and the rural cases and through things we'll get into is whether we should be sort of declaring victory just because that 85% number has been reached and most people live under a tower. And I, I do raise some, some ways in which I, I don't think uh, the, the Internet that we've gotten uh, through a mobile channel is the one I think we all were expecting to get. You, you draw the distinction between access uh, and, and effective use um, in the book, and I want to I want to get to that. But uh, first, I just want to I just want to put a point on this this sort of what is my phone, what is my experience piece. You know, recognizing that heterogeneity. Um, a couple of things. If w- say there's there is heterogeneity and there's a range, but I'm buying this phone, seventy five dollars feature phone. A couple of things on it. Does it have features that are not internet related like a camera a recorder and would these be useful uh and then also put that 75 dollar figure with a data plan that i'm paying for separately in the context of you know overall monthly budgets yeah and that's that's the trick i mean so uh, the, the well there are a couple things going on first off the news is generally good on devices that the devices are getting less expensive every year they do they do more, and this is the same thing that we're accustomed to. That you know, the ca- the camera was two megapixels, and now it's six. You know, it's for seventy five bucks. Maybe it used to be, um, it used to be half a megapixel, and now it's two megapixels. I mean, you don't get the same performance. You get slower processors. You get smaller screens. You get things that are, you know, laggy, meaning that you know that there's a long response time when you click something before it actually executes. Um, the storage may not be as high as you want. Um, the battery life may not be as good as you want. Um, the interface may not be as clean and breezy as the, as the ones that we enjoy. Um, but it's still uh, increasingly now it's a smartphone. And the idea that you can get a smartphone for under $100 isn't uh, fanciful anymore. You can, you can get it. And it's probably pretty good as the smartphone that you would spend, uh, that, that one would have spent three or $400 on just three or four years ago. So the, the progress on devices is... Is pretty good already, and they're really they're they're not that far off. I mean, there are still plenty of basic phones around. Candy bar phones. I was talking to, with, you know, what they call basic phones or dumb phones. Um, there's still plenty of those around. Um, there, are the, and then there's this sort of middle category of feature phones, which which have some things like a media player or a, or a camera or something on them, but aren't uh, an Android phone or or uh, an Apple phone. Um, and that's the category that's really been under pressure lately, I think that the, that the proportion of new phones being sold every year that sort of fit that feature phone category uh, is is declining, and smartphones are rising. So in a few more years, it will be hard to buy anything but a smartphone uh, new, um, and that's and that's again uh, a remarkable uh, transformation and and um, and, a, and a good tech story. So the Internet that, in that sense, the Internet that uh, one consumes uh, or interacts with through a mobile device in Rwanda or India or South Africa or, um, you know, Nicaragua or whatever, is, isn't that different than the Internet that, that, that you and I might consume through our mobile devices. The, one of the distinctions I make in the book is... Whereas for us, that mobile device is one of several different types of internet uh, modalities or, or, or kind of methods that we use to get there. 
uh, folks who only have a mobile phone and only have that cell tower have a mobile-only repertoire, a, a digital repertoire that's mobile-only. And this means they're making more compromises, essentially, and spending less time uh, on, a, on a device that's, that's perfect for all their tasks. I just want to go back, on, and on the budget piece, it, mm-hmm. relative to electricity or water, oh, right. food, I mean, sort of, is, yeah. it, is it equal to those? It's probably uh, often higher than those. Hmm. Um, it's really, I think it's, sometimes it's hard to get good, good data on this because it depends on... Um, uh, it depends on the country. The, the, there's actually a, a lot of variability in, in how much, um, you know, a, a minute costs uh, of, of voice talk time or, or how much a megabyte costs of data. Um, and, uh, I mean, it depends on the kind of the, how the regulators have sold the spectrum and, and how many, you know, how competitive the market is and how many strange taxes there are and a whole bunch of reasons why it's not the same from place to place. Makes sense. Um, but there are plenty of places where um, there are actually sort of civil civil society movements um, uh, making the case that it's it's too much, you know, and it's still too much, um, and that it's you know ten or twenty or thirty percent of the uh, total kind of monthly household income goes to telecommunications. It's too high. Um, the uh, the let me see. It's the Broadband Commission, which was uh, a, a group sponsored by the United Nations. Um, it's sort of a standing group, and every every few years they put out a report on the state of broadband. Um, and they've got kind of agreed on targets that they they would like to see uh, broadband costs no more than five percent of monthly household income around the world, um, and. Over the last several years, most of the developed world, most of the more prosperous economies have had no problem hitting that 5% threshold. Um, but uh, there are countries left in the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where uh, that, that threshold is, is not nearly there. And that's for a fairly kind of yeah, reasonable big bundle of, of you know, uh, of, of a decent chunk of, of uh Megabytes that you could kind of feel like you've got a good internet experience for the month, and that's that's costing more than five percent, which is higher than the broadband commission wants. Now, for part of the your research, staying in South Africa here, you were uh, you were in Cape Town, um, and you asked teenagers that you found in libraries around some of these low income neighborhoods um, an interesting question. That being, your phone has internet. Why are you at a library PC? Um, one sort of what. What prompted you to sort of use that as a as a starting question? Where did it come from? And then, uh, what, what does that represent about you know this issue of use versus access? Uh, this was a study I did with um, uh, research partners at the University of Cape Town. Um, Marion Walton, in particular, is a professor in media studies there, who was the sort of co investigator with me, and I'm, I'm really grateful for um, getting to know Marion and working with her on this. She's, she's um, spent, you know, um, several more years than me living, living in Cape Town and working on these questions of affordable access and what use looks like. Um, we were funded uh, by the, um, the International Development Research Center, which is a Canadian organization, uh, sort of part of the Canadian government that, that looks, it's always been kind of interested in these questions of, of technology and development, and by the uh, Bill Melinda Gates Foundation um, as part of a larger project that was looking at the state of public access 
uh, to the internet, um, telecenters and libraries and cyber cafes, those sorts of things around the world. And we, Marion and I, got to sort of be the ones who were thinking about how mobile was complicating that whole idea of public access. And so our question really had to be about mobile uh, as, as part of this project, but it was funny that the best way to look at it actually was to still go back to the public access places and, and, and use that kind of question, uh, which is kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a cute question, and, you know, obviously we didn't spend the whole time just on that one question, but the question helps us kind of unpack some of these ideas that you've already heard me talk about, this difference between having only one device or only one network, and having a repertoire of things to choose from. And what we were seeing with the, with the teenagers we were talking to in um, these public access venues uh, was actually a strong case for the continued importance of public access venues because each one of these kids already had the Internet in their pocket. But they had one Internet that wasn't the same Internet they got when they walked half an hour, waited in line for half an hour to get half an hour of free PC-based internet a day uh, to do their homework on. And that, to me, was a real penny drop about how, you know, we can't declare victory just because 85% of the world lives under a cell signal. These, these, these teenagers were voting with their feet, essentially, um, and voting with their pocketbooks and going back to the, to the cyber cafes and the telecenters um, to, to get their work done. And so the questions that Mary and I got to work through a little bit um, helped me kind of think through. It was really kind of uh, a study that, that helped me kind of want to frame the whole book was, um, you know, what do these repertoires look like? And, and how can it be that the, that the cell phone as a means to access the Internet is so powerful for, for these students and for other people uh, in so many ways? Then why is it that they're still back there, you know, in the, in the venue? And the two... The, there are two generalizable answers and one not quite so generalizable answer. The not quite so generalizable answer is specific to Cape Town or specific to South Africa. It's a little bit around safety in some cases that, that this was, uh, you know, these guys and, and girls lived in, in small homes and, and, and maybe had trouble kind of finding a place to do the homework and all that. That's a pretty universal thing. Add to, add to that, you know, some of them are living in really tough places. Um, and it's, uh, a good place to go. So, Letting aside the fact that there's technology there, just the idea of going back to a library or going back to a, uh, a, a an institution where they could do their homework kind of in peace and focus, I think um, gave me, again, great respect for the, the ideas of libraries and, and, and safe places again. Um, but the two more generalizable ones um, that came out of the work are the what we call the affordances, which is the the the, the parts of the technology, what the technology lets you do or, or suggests you should do, um, the particular affordances of, of personal computers and of um, of unmetered access, and and the second was the, this price issue that um, the number one reason that people were there was it was cheaper to do their homework with somebody else paying for the bits than for them trying to do it on their phones. Um, so I can talk a little bit more about each of those if you if you want. Well, let's get into that with with the conversation about or part of a conversation about mm -hmm. what what are the most popular uses for internet activities on a phone. And sure, you you point out that there's there's sort of remarkable universality in in the the 
most popular kinds of online activities. They are yep. chat, social, social networking, games, uh, and media. So you have the top 10 apps downloads being YouTube and Snapchat and Instagram and Skype and Facebook and uh, all these things from so basically from Silicon Valley companies. Um, but all of them are largely around consumption um, versus what you touched on a little bit, which is productivity. That would be the, the library example there of doing your homework. Yeah. Um, how what is is why is productivity lagging so much? Uh, on the on this in the mobile experience, are there ways to to improve that? What's your what's your outlook on on the distinctions between those two and, and how they're headed? Well, there's a, there uh, there are a couple of threads to pull on there. The first is um, uh, what do we mean by most important? By time? By popular? All that kind of stuff. Um, the second is who cares about productivity? Um, and we should we should care about productivity. One group that cares, or one kind of discourse in the broader policy conversation that cares particularly about productivity and I, or production, not just economic productivity, but this idea of, of contributing and making and earning a living or having a voice, which are the two categories I use. Uh, there, there are others too, expressing oneself. But why do those sorts of production things matter? Um, well, it's, it's part of the reason they matter in, in these broader kind of global policy discussions is that's the kind of stuff of economic development and, and, and you know, creating prosperity and creating well-being and getting out of poverty and all that. There is a production component to that. And whether people are never touching a computer and they're going off and they're building homes or, or um, you know, kind of working in manufacturing or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of things about productivity and economy, you know, and, and there are questions about then how digital changes uh, productivity. Uh, so the, we want to privilege, in a way, the productivity conversations when we're linking technology to processes of economic development. And there's nothing wrong with linking it there. I think the problem is that uh, the, the, somewhere between the, the formal research liter, literature and the kind of more informal or broader kind of discourse around the role of um, communication technologies in development um, has been so focused on uh, productivity um, or information seeking as, as related to that um, that they have sort of had turned a turned a blind eye to the totality of people's online practices and digital practices so that you end up with agricultural economists studying how people how farmers check farm prices on their cell phones and you could kind of imagine you play that out that they forget that that same farmer probably makes one call about prices a day and makes five calls to his cousin you know um, or that you know we're trying to figure out how to use uh, the internet to uh, you know to distribute uh, you know information about prenatal care or something like that, and that 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 app which may be distributing information about prenatal care has to sit on a home screen with nine other apps, most of which are facebook and you know and and uh, and Google and YouTube as we were just talking about, and that the I think it 's very important for even the practitioners and researchers who want to study the, the, the kind of the potential of these technologies to do good or enable productivity or enable expression to kind of see where those uh, practices and enabling processes sit as part of the whole. And in fact, to complicate the idea that there's some stuff that's not social and some stuff that is, or some stuff that's you know instrumental or, or useful and some stuff that's not. Actually, the, the lines are quite 
blurred and getting more blurred all the time. Um, and, you know, that's why the farmers who are figuring out how to do price check mechanisms either make phone calls, which is what they used to do. Maybe the government sets up some uh, system that sends them SMSs with the price of mangoes every every week. Uh, and maybe they set up a Facebook chat room, or I don't know, it's, a, it's a group, I guess, not a chat room, but they set up a Facebook group where they can exchange information with each other about um, mango prices, right? And that's, it's not even really fair to say that Facebook isn't always, uh, is, is always social or always frivolous, right? right. And that, that people are using these platforms, these generalized platforms, for both the frivolous and the, the incredibly serious and the productive and the non-productive. Um, and that I think that that's the, towards the end of the book and a little bit in, in, the, in the work I'm doing now, I'm very interested in sort of pursuing these things in, in more detail. I think of that chat example as such a powerful one for sort of blurring those lines where exactly as you say, you're you're expressing yourself one minute, you're chatting with a friend the other, and then the next you're lining up business, all within the same feature, the same app, yep. um, but very different use cases. Uh, and it's sort of, it's a question of, well, what is that thing really? I mean, how useful do you at this point even find distinctions around you know, voice versus consumption versus productivity. Well, the same the same case the the same argument can be made for for voice, right? And the, the, some of the earliest work I did research I did in the space was in uh, Rwanda with micro entrepreneurs, um, to small business owners uh, who were, had been getting their kind of first phone. And this was back in 2004, 2005. It's all voice, um, and we started out with questions. We did a survey where we would uh, it was like a it was an intercept thing. We walk up to people and say, hey, can we interview you? Yeah. Can we look at your last 10 calls? And you pull up the phone book uh, in the, in the, on the phone, and you could go down the last 10 calls and, and say, who was that, and what did you talk about? Um, and we started with only allowing people to check one thing. Was it a business call? Was it a uh, calling to say hello? Was it a joke? Was it friends and family kind of thing? And we found we couldn't do that. We had to make the categories check all that apply. And the blurring between the social and the instrumental, the productive kind of uses of, of the, the medium, the, the phone, the voice call, uh, were such that you needed to kind of play, pay close attention to the way in which economic and productive activities are embedded in social relations. This is old sociology stuff playing out in, in tech. Um, and I think that the same stuff is happening now, in fact, arguably even more so, where... Facebook and, and Twitter and YouTube with all its, you know, hosted, you know, course content for, for studying for, uh, you know, Khan Academy and all, all these sorts of things. You could, you could make the argument that there's lots of productive stuff happening there right alongside the stuff that's, that's, um, maybe not so central to the kind of the development, um, priorities of, of states or NGOs or whatever. Um, and that what's broken isn't that. That's just what that's just the way humans behave, um, embedded and complex and blurring and dynamic. Um, and it's the narratives that are stale and siloed. Um, and that it's the pitch mechanisms that people can do to make an app to help farmers check farm prices when we don't actually need another app taking up, taking up space on the home screen. What we need is 
people with the kind of teaching social media skills to farmers or facilitating the right groups such that they can build a Facebook group or a Twitter, um, you know, a Twitter list or whatever that, um, that allows them to, to exchange what the information they need on these platforms uh, more effectively. The structural challenges with either providing a, a new service or app for some kind of productivity piece or teaching the skills within existing apps. I, I was thinking, you know, uh, when I was reading these sections of the book, just about, about baseball um, and these sort of big market, small market teams where essentially you have the Yankees who have these huge payrolls and they're able to support them year after year. And then you have these other teams like the Pirates and they can win sometimes, but, you know, essentially you, you'd rather bet on, on the pieces on the teams that have you know the resources and the just the range of of skills and literacies that they have um there will always be examples of of people i saw one the other day who in america who had been homeless but been developing mobile games who sort of are able to overcome these and and create amazing things and have and be incredible citizens and and economic engines with the mobile experience, but what is, what is necessary? Is, is it really basic blocks like teaching, teaching people how to use Facebook groups to, to do whatever they want to do? What else, what else can be done to improve those digital literacy skills? So there's a couple, there's a couple things involved there. I think that, uh, the idea of, uh, helping people get the most out of the tools, um, through improving digital literacies is something that we haven't cracked at scale yet. I don't think, um, you know, middle school curriculums or high school curriculums do enough, uh, quickly enough to, to, uh, and this is not just in the U.S., but around the world, to kind of train up uh, digital literacy. And it can be very hard to, to, to justify, hey, we're going to teach, teach kids Facebook and Twitter. You know, it's hard to um, or, or, or WeChat or, you know, Weibo or whatever, depending on where you are. These are ones that are popular elsewhere. Um, it seems crazy to do, but I think that there's huge value in that. And that isn't turning everybody into an app entrepreneur or saying that the only way to make money is to do something directly in tech. It's using tech to pursue your own livelihoods or your own expression or whatever uh, more effectively. And digital literacy, even as much as the devices and the networks unlock that, they only work to the extent that people uh, have the skills to use these things effectively. And it's the hardest one to do well because it doesn't scale very well. It's hard to kind of train thousands of people at a time unless we can, you know, somehow make these things more bootstrappy than they, than they are. So I, I think that the literacy question, digital literacy question, remains uh, somewhat unsolved, although there's a lot of great work happening there. I don't want to diminish the fact that I'm not the only person saying this and there's people trying to work on these pedagogies. Um, and certainly under-resourced and under kind of Im- under embraced as as part of the puzzle, um, uh, you know, people have, uh, other researchers have spoken about. Uh, Hargadi talks about second order divides and skill divides, and Michael Gernstein talks about effective use, and Mark Warshower talks about kind of the you know the social capital that, that surrounds this, and a, a whole bunch of scholars and a community of people working on this that all kind of see the ways in which literacies uh, remain the sort of the human side of technology use remain uh, as much a uh, a limiting factor and an enabling factor as, as the technology conversation tends to get framed around digital divides. Let me say one more thing on literacies, which is the last people who are uh, coming to mind right now, is the World Development Report this year 
published by the World Bank, takes a big development topic every year. They do a, a massive, you know, hundred, you know, hundreds of pages of of, uh, of analysis across various sectors on some element of uh, the development puzzle. And this year it was on technology and development. And the, the World Development Report 2016 identifies a lot of things that are uh, analog. Um, analog partners to the developments that are happening digitally, right? And basically saying, if we want to get the most out of digital, we actually have to invest in things like literacies and, and in regulatory regimes that promote uh, competition as opposed to monopolies in the digital space and in things that promote the broad-based adoption of uh, technologies in uh, sectors other than technology, for example. Um, the, the, the World Bank itself has sort of come to a place that's not just rate flying this kind of pro-technology banner and rather kind of seeing technology as something that, that's linked to kind of broader um, and more kind of ongoing, uh, you know, kind of recognizable development challenges, of which literacy is a major one. So, the, yeah, the, so the literacy thing is, um, is, is something worth uh, keeping an eye on. But the literacy doesn't just apply to productivity uh, or economic development. I was thinking about, you know, again, some where you're sort of just discussing basically voice, uh, mm-hmm. voice and engagement, where you sort of think about, well, if I have a mobile phone with internet access and say it has a chat service or whatnot, um, it's harder for me to engage in lengthy, rich dialogue. It's harder for me to create and post yeah. some kind of thoughtful view uh, the way I would on a blog post even. Um, this digital literacy question and... Uh, uh, seems to me applies well beyond economic development. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's the, this, there are, because there's types of, of production that um, aren't directly tied to economic development. Um, and they're just part of being human and expressing and creating art and, and finding a voice and all that. And this is not to say that there isn't plenty of production happening on mobile devices. I mean, and, and at the top end, you drive by these great billboards and Apple's always happy to show you some fantastic photograph that was taken on an iPhone. Um, great. You know, um, and the services, these platforms like Facebook and Instagram, uh, whatever, that, that allow people to kind of seamlessly share lots of images and videos and, you know, Vine and little tiny, you know, 10 second videos and stuff back and forth means there's, there's probably, you know, you know, in one sense, there's more production happening by more people thanks to mobile devices than ever before. The kind of annoying critique I raise in the book is I don't see that, that those types of production activities are getting the traction, either the, either the monetary return in a development sense or the kind of the, the opinion leadership kind of, you know, kind of long, you know, kind of culture influencing things that, that, um, that we may want to see when we talk about technologies being as empowering as they can. And that some of the most high value uh, activities, those tasks, whether it's running a climate model. Not everybody's going to run a climate model, I know, but you know, you can make some money if you run a climate model or an economic model, or, or you know, writing a long piece of of prose, or uh, creating a movie, you know, with careful cuts and all that kind of stuff. Some of these things are still easier on uh, devices other than uh, mobile phones and on networks other than mobile networks, and we all still have them in our life. Uh, 
except not everybody does. And so we need to be careful about letting our rhetoric get out ahead of the affordances of the devices and the networks that people who have mobile-only Internet experiences have. Um, and I would link that to a few years ago, Steve Jobs uh, was interviewed, in, it was 2010, I think. He was asked about whether PCs were dying. Uh, this was a, a conference on you know, kind of the future of the net and the enthusiasm for the iPhone, of course. Um, and so the, the, the question was, are PCs dying? And, and Steve Jobs, I use this, uh, it, this is in the book. Um, Steve Jobs said, well, no, they're not, they're not dying because uh, PCs are um, well, he used the, uh, the, the reference of a, of, a, of a farm, and he said, in the old days, all we had were trucks because we all lived on farms and we needed trucks to move things, you know, to do all our farming stuff. And now we're not all farmers, and so not everybody needs a truck. And he said, PCs are like trucks, and not everybody needs a truck. Um, and I don't actually disagree with that, but the rotation I would ask and the book asks uh, to make on that quote and on that worldview is it's not that certain people need trucks and other people don't. It's, the, it's an identification that certain tasks, certain activities still need the digital equivalent of trucks, PCs, uh, and, and networks that um, carry lots of data like trucks, um, and, and that some tasks don't, and that we need to ask who has access to, to the, the tools and networks they need to pursue those tasks if they want them. And I don't think that we're done, and to go back to your original first question about the 85% and being after access, I don't think we're done. I don't think we can declare victory just because 85% of the world lives under a signal that they can barely afford to use on a device that's not going to allow them to do everything they want to do. We, there's room to keep doing things like community access telecenters or free Wi-Fi in the train stations like Google's doing uh, in India right now. We'll do, we'll, take a, we'll do an enormous amount to give people access to more affordances that will allow them to be more effective users of the Internet than they are now, and those are not just mobile affordances. Right. You say in the book that the problem is not that it's difficult to produce content or difficult to earn money for this kind of micro work performed on a mobile phone. But the the persistent issue is, you quote, the shift to a more mobile Internet that that it remains relatively difficult to produce content for which one will be paid relatively well, which I think gets to that point about, you know, sometimes trucks are necessary for doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's, there's plenty of content being created on Facebook every single day, um, and nobody other than Facebook is getting paid for that content. In the last part of uh, our conversation, I'd like to shift away from uh, development productivity. Um, just go back to the human use, usage for, for a second here. Um, how do people try to figure out how much data they're using or how how much they're using the uh, the internet with their phones given um, that it's a uh, it's still a, a costly um, device for them uh, including the data uh, and your uh, your comments sort of about they're operating under this this uh, metered mindset yep so the metered mindset has two components so this problem of cost by the bit has Two, let me do two problems and one clear impact of why this stuff's important. Um, the, the two problems are the real, the undeniable problem that it costs a lot per bit to consume uh, data on, the mobile, on a mobile phone over a mobile network if you are a prepay user and you don't have a contract. So the cost of 
watching a bunch of YouTube videos, whether they're for, you know, whether they're Shakira videos, uh, which is an example I used in a, in a study I, I did and picked that at random, uh, or um, an incredibly important video issued by the World Health Organization about, you know, how to, you know, how to um, uh, prevent the spread of a disease. Um, if you're paying by the bit, the chances of you watching as many of that or consuming as much as you want are lower than if you uh, have uh, access to a, a plan that you can afford uh, or you're in an all-you-can-eat situation. And there are research studies that suggest that if you flip people from pay by the bit to all-you-can-eat, their their you know the consumption goes way up. Um, so there's like the real problem of on a per-bit basis, it's too expensive, and we need to get that cost down. Um, there's a second problem, which is because there's sort of a detachment between, you know, bits, bytes are very abstract, money is not, and you're not actually consuming money, you're consuming bits, it's hard to map those things effectively. So you get all these sorts of kind of cognitive errors uh, where you're not, you're kind of over-accounting for, um, you're being overly cautious, right? And you, you leave bits on the table, you, you, don't, you don't click on links you want, you don't do the, the, you know, don't spend as much time on Facebook as you might want, or you don't spend as much time on YouTube. You certainly don't, you know, kind of leave stuff running in the background. And this isn't just a rational thing, but kind of that kind of um, the you know, cognitive kind of challenges. And I think that, that the best way to empathize with that metered mindset is to think back about to any time you got stung by a roaming bill on your, uh, on your own cell phone and how careful you were about using the net uh, or, or, or making phone calls when you were roaming next time. Uh, and that this is just, we're back in a situation where the victory that we claim to have had, that most of the world now has access, at least hypothetically, um, involves them doing so with this kind of pervasive, you know, persistent feeling of, of dread or caution that they're going to overclick. So there are ways in which this is getting better. The Android operating system and the, and the um, Apple operating system are getting better with each passing iteration at representing how much data has been consumed and which uh, apps are doing it. Um, Google's done some interesting experiments, still research, where they've actually put the amount of bits that we, you will cost if you click on a link off their homepage. They're just sort of exploring on it. It's not rolled out yet. It's just research. Um, but the trial was really interesting. I'm kind of curious to see how they're, they're trying to empathize with the metered mindset. Um, Microsoft is certainly doing that uh, in their operating systems about when you pull down updates, uh, whether you're on a cell connection or a Wi-Fi connection. It will, it'll change the behavior now, which is good. And certainly, and this is the big impact I was going to talk about, Facebook's been very good at empathizing with the, with the metered mindset. So good that they've run up against the kind of the vision of the Internet itself. And here I'm talking about uh, their proposals to kind of subsidize the, uh, the mobile internet Facebook experience for, for many users in, in many developing countries. You, you noted that the, the result of these cognitive errors, these biases, is underconsumption. Mm-hmm. Um, has anybody, to your knowledge, tried to figure out sort of how serious a problem is that considered as another way to sort of think about it? Is underconsumption really bad? What, I, what are they giving yeah. up? So I think it's really, I think it's really bad. I don't think there's enough research on this. And, and now, you know, I mean, I, I did a bit of a review in the, in the book of this, but that's already a couple of years old. And I think you would now find um, more, um, more studies coming out that are kind of trying to quantify the, the extent to which, 
um, this kind of feeling of being on um, prepay changes your internet, changes the amount that you consume. Um, but it's just a, it's just an empathy thing to some extent, which is if you, if you, um, if you're spending 20% of your household income, you haven't hit those, you know, ITU broadband commission 5% targets because you live in a place where data is expensive and incomes are low. Um, and you pay by the bit and you know Every two weeks, when you go down to the corner store and buy more airtime, and that gets converted into minutes, uh, that it costs you more than you want to pay, your chances of kind of swimming in the internet and using it effectively in the way that some of us almost take for granted, with you know background processes and huge you know three you know um, you know uh, H, you know watching HD videos on 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 Netflix or whatever is a is is living in a bandwidth cornucopia that the rest of the world doesn't have right now. So we risk a kind of stratification of the internet into those who can kind of can use it without that feeling of constraint and those who are um, feeling constrained all the time. And the rhetoric doesn't often line up with that. We, we tend to sort of say that everybody's on the same side of the divide and everybody's got the same internet just because they've got hypothetical access. And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm challenging. Um, the, the way that this kind of amplifies up from just being something that happens at the individual level is Facebook uh, and a few others. Not just Facebook, but Wikipedia found this. Um, Facebook tried it. Air, um, Airtel in India tried it. Uh, Twitter does it in the U.S. Um, T-Mobile will let you in the U.S. download uh, songs that don't count against your data cap because they want you using more. Uh, a lot of the companies have been exploring ways to enter into relationships with um, mobile network operators to subsidize the bits of Internet users for the services that they uh, want those users to, to spend time on. Um, so the, as, a, as a practice, this is called zero rating. Uh, and I do kind of need to say that even since the book came out, there's a little bit of zero rating, uh, on zero rating in the book. Things have really kind of come to a head in India in particular, and particularly around Facebook. That Facebook, uh, in 2014 and 2015 was pushing something called, uh, internet.org, which was, uh, dressing up a lot of the kind of the benefits of the, uh, the internet for maternal health and farm prices and education, all that stuff we were just talking about, along with Facebook. So you had a sort of suite of, of nine or ten things you could choose, putting that on an app uh, and, and working with a mobile network operator to say everything inside that app is free and doesn't count against your cap. And that only works uh, as something that's of compelling to people because of the metered mindset and the fact that there's such a palpable sense of I don't want to click on anything that I, I, I think I'm going to have to pay for that I'll stay in my... Facebook plus zone, this thing called internet.org that got rebranded as, as free basics. Uh, and you know, Facebook did, did very well with this. It rolled out in a uh, dozen, maybe two dozen countries kind of without major incident, uh, until late last year. Uh, and it then bumped into India where there was a, a blowback, uh, that this practice, uh, violated net neutrality and the principle that all bits should be treated the same and not discriminated against, that some services can't get discriminated against in prices. Uh, and the Facebook had a, or the, the Indian regulator had about a million comments come from this, from the kind of the civil society, the internet civil society in India, um, most of which were kind of 
um, protesting against uh, zero rating, and the regulator took it all under advisement, took several months, and just recently issued a, a ruling um, uh, banning um, zero rating as a practice. Uh, in, in, there's some details to which ones are special cases, but for the most part, saying Facebook and others, you want to you, you use this to subsidize your services, you, you can't do that. Um, and this is a major sort of turning of the tide in how we approach the shift to a more mobile internet. The zero rating, brouhaha, tension, crisis, depending on how you want to call it, is only because of the metered mindset. And, the, and that's only because that the only way you can kind of allocate spectrum is to have people, have mobile network operators charged by the bit for it. So if we had a different internet with more Wi-Fi and more stuff in train stations and more people with home connections and maybe someday with satellites and drones kind of taking the pressure off the, the mobile channel, then this zero rating conflict will go away. Final question here for you then. What is your current level of optimism, say, 25 years from now about an internet that's more inclusive and, and yeah, more effective use for people everywhere in every country, but particularly in for the emerging markets? Uh, I, 25 years is a long time, but even in five or 10 years, I mean, I, I, you will see the, the, some of these kind of first-level access problems recede uh, to the conversation we were having before. Um, but I think that the, an Internet with 5 billion people on it uh, is going to look different than the Internet we have right now, which is you know, 2 or 3 billion people, depending on how you count. Um, and as the kind of internet population starts to look more like the world population, uh, two types of things could happen. It could be that the internet itself, the fact that everybody's got access is going to change kind of the structures of society and, and, and change, um, you know, change the, the, the nature of economic stratification and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think you'll see some of that, but I don't think it's all necessarily good news. Um, you know, the Nairobi's having protests right now about uh, Uber and, uh, you know, disrupting, to use that word, the, the taxi markets in Nairobi. And I say what you will about uh, whether the taxi market in Nairobi should or shouldn't be disrupted and whether Uber is the right person to the right organization to do it. But it is kind of changing, right, that even these things that are local services have a have a digital component to them. And it's not just happening in 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 Seattle and, and Boston and Helsinki. It's happening in Nairobi and, and in smaller towns all around Kenya as well. Um, so that's that's the thing where you, I think that the right answer, or the, the more accurate answer, isn't that it's going to get better for everybody, but that the ways in which the, um, a more mobile Internet will bring more people online in certain kind of ways that are, are good in some, in some senses and, and constraining in others will actually reinforce existing stratifications and ones that we'll recognize as, as you know, the, it'll, it'll look as... as uh, as stratified as it does now, and set up these new disruptions. Um, but I think there's a lot to um, keep our eye on, and I would say this is the final, as my kind of final point, is just, again, I, I come back to this idea of we don't want to declare victory um, that the access problem is, is the right one to have solved or that it's a sufficient problem to have solved. These questions of effective use don't scale very well, and I think as we kind of explore what kind of what it means to be effective online those old paradigms of developing world versus developed 
will probably fall away, and in 10 years, the, the discussions we'll be having will be kind of more reflective of the same types of discussions we're having here in the, in the U.S. about the shape, of, the shape of the income distribution in the U.S. and, and whether the, the, the new digital world is, is, is good for people of modest means or not. And I think you're going to see that same sort of conversations happening on a global level as more of daily life has to go through these servers um, you know, kind of sitting, sitting in air-conditioned rooms, sometimes 7,000 miles away. My guest today has been Jonathan Donner. He's the author of After Access, Inclusion, Development, and a More Mobile Internet, published by MIT Press. Jonathan, thanks for being part of the New Books and Media and Communications podcast. Thanks so much. 